come to the proclamation of the word, it's always good for us to go to the Lord and pray for his help in our time. Let us do so now. Lord, our God, we come to you as a needy people. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to know you, not just to know about you, but to know you and to love you and serve you. And so as we open up your word, as we look to you for all that we need for life and godliness, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As we come to our text this morning, I'll invite you to follow along with me for our scripture reading. and You can find it in your ESV Bible or print it in your bulletin. And our text is 2 Samuel, the 7th chapter, the first 17 verses. And while you find that passage, I'll explain a bit of the context. Even more so than normal, the context is supremely important. David, in our passage, as a man after God's own heart, has been through a tremendous transition since last week. We're now about halfway through this sermon series on the life of David, and we cannot underscore the gap that has taken place in the last seven days. Although it's only 12 chapters of Scripture for us, nearly 15 years have passed by since David's encounter with Nabal and Abigail that we looked at last week. Saul and Jonathan have died. David has been anointed First, the king of Judah, and subsequently the king over Israel as well. He has gone and retrieved the ark of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. He's established the United Kingdom in Israel in the city of David, which is Jerusalem. And he's finally been given rest after much of his warring and fleeing life. And it's here at this point that David begins to ponder the apparent discrepancy See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. See, God has richly blessed the people of Israel. They had wandered through the wilderness after Egypt those many long years, through the arid desert, depending daily upon the manna for survival. They'd wandered through the years of conquest into the land of tribal warfare, through the tumultuous and trying years of faithlessness and anarchy that came with the judges. Most recently, through the passing and failing reign of Saul, their first king. You see, Israel now is finally a nation with a capital, with a true king. And they're no longer nomads. And they need to figure out how to live this daily life with the rhythms of being city folk rather than country people. Let us turn our attention now to God's Word. I will read our text before us. 2 Samuel 7, beginning at verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Egypt, the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. 
In all places where I moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. When I graduated from Erskine College, I remember that day very vividly. It was like most Saturdays in Due West, uh, with one exception, for this was the first time in many years, even the most senior faculty could not remember a time when graduation wasn't to take place in front of the towers under the beautiful oak trees, but instead was to be in the gymnasium because of the rain. Now, there was the typical hustle and shuffle of getting this little academic village ready for a few hundred extra folks. Chairs had to be moved about and set up still. Robes had to be donned. The procession had to be placed in order. The brass had to queue up pomp and circumstance. But the setting was changed. Instead of the sun shining through the trees, and the warm breeze blowing across the lawn, we had the hum and pop of those ugly halide lights. We had the cold, stale air forced through the ductwork. Now, I could have bemoaned this fact, but, you know, as a college senior, like most, I was just looking forward to shaking that hand and snatching that piece of paper while it was there to be had. But nevertheless, I still missed being outside. You see, it, was, it wasn't the same. The pictures weren't as good. We weren't able to have the idyllic little family picnic as we thought before the trees. The rain had, shall we say, put a damper on things. I think that's what we see here in our passage. But the first thing we should note is that Yahweh has given David rest. Now I will be using Yahweh. That's what you see in your bulletin printed, Y-H. W-H, it's the proper name of God. Whenever you see Lord in all caps, that's the name of the Almighty. Yahweh had given David rest from all of his surrounding enemies. 
David had come to the completion of his initial tasking before God, and God says, it's enough, David. You passed the test of defeating Goliath, of depending upon me for strength. You have saved the people of Keilah, as we have seen. You have followed the Lord faithfully while waiting for Saul to die. Notice again, David was anointed king well before Saul had given up the throne and died. He'd been patient. He had been anointed over a united kingdom, finally bringing back the ark of God's covenant presence into the midst of the people. Yet David becomes unsettled, despite the fact that seemingly for the first time the people of Israel are actually settled. David stirs and says, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent? He's unhappy with this day of celebration. It appears as if the ark of God, the very presence of God, is not enough for King David. Now sure, he seems to have pious reasons. Why do I have a house and God doesn't have a house? But I think as we dig a bit deeper, we'll see that subtle temptation of pride lurking ever before the king. Notice the Lord's response to David in verse 5. Would you build me a house to dwell in? As if David could do something for God. As if the God of the universe would need or want a house or could ever be contained in one. Furthermore, Yahweh then reminds David that he hasn't even really done anything for himself. Look at the next five to six verses. Notice the subject. God is emphasizing that he is the one who is about the work of redemption and deliverance for his people. Look at it. I brought up the people. I took you from the pasture. I have been with you and have cut off all your enemies. I will make for you a great name. I will appoint a place and will plant them. I will give you rest. Finally, we see this glaring crescendo as Nathan speaks to King David. Look at verse 11. It could not be more emphatic. Probably one of the greatest promises in the Old Testament, even in all of Scripture. He switches to the third person. Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. The Lord is speaking. He switches to the third person and repeats it. He could not make it more clearly. King David, I declare to you that I will make you a house. God's saying to David and to us, you think you have a house. You think you have this grand palace. It's just, it's just wood and precious metals and stone put together. And you think that I have need of anything to accomplish my purposes? Oh no, David, you will not build me a house. No, I will make you a house. In other words, God is telling him, I will fashion for you something which no hand can make. I will make you into a people, into a nation, into a dynasty, that has an everlasting identity bound to the name of God Himself. And I will give you rest, not because you have some great stronghold, but because I, the Lord of hosts, am your stronghold. This is extremely important for us to meditate upon this morning as we seek to apply this passage to our own lives How often do we see the exercise of religion 
as more important than the object of religion. How often do we long to know things about God rather than to know God himself? How often do you try to put God in a nice, tameable box and put him on the shelf to be pulled off for this reason or that reason? Someone to be mastered rather than someone by whom we are to be mastered. And here's a good barometer for you, a good question. When you think about your Christian life, when you think about your relationship to God Almighty, do you begin listing off things that you do? Oh yes, I, I come to church. See my great love for the Father. I come to Sunday school even. I come to Wednesday night. I do two circles and a Bible study and a prayer group. I, 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 I. And God is saying, I will give you rest. I will appoint a place for my people and plant them. We need to sit and marvel at what God is doing for his people. See, the heart posture is not, oh, do I have to go to Sunday school again? The heart posture is, wow, isn't it amazing that God has put me in a place and in a time in history when I can come study his word immediately? I have the Bible in my own language. God has brought me to a place and has appointed a place for me to be in fellowship with the body of Christ openly and freely. That's our heart posture. What God is doing in and through us and for us. Now as we come to the second part of our passage and look back to our text, we go to verse 12. Now God begins to explain to David just how he is going to do this. He outlines this prophecy that would be partially fulfilled at least by King Solomon after David. We see that in 1 Kings 6 and 2 Chronicles 3. God's beginning to under, understand and unpack for David, what does it mean that I'm going to make you a house? You see, he's told David, although not in our text, that you can't build this house, David. You're a man of warfare. You have shed too much blood. But despite these stipulations, we notice that the emphasis in our text, it's not the building of the physical temple. It's not that Solomon would do this. It's not that David could not do it. The emphasis in our text is the relationship with God. God is making a covenant with David. Now we'll pause here for a quick aside. You notice... Very strikingly, there's no covenant in our passage. There's no word covenant. Well, how do we know, Philip? How do we know that this is God making covenant with David? Well, I would point you to another part of Scripture, Psalm 89, verse 3 and 4. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. You see, it's what Scripture teaches God is making a covenant. He's building a relationship with David here. But we also see this because the emphasis of the passage is on the relationship, not the temple building, not the fashioning of a house. God is correcting David's vision. David, it's not about the house. It's not about what you do for me. It's not about who will build the temple and when and how. It's about the relationship of that man with God. Notice that he says as we continue, He shall build a house for my name. 
This appears to be a permission that's granted to Solomon. It's God saying, yes, I will let him build me a house. But notice, it's for my name. Surprisingly, the Lord of glory is proclaiming to David and his offspring, they will bear the very name of God. They will bear the name Yahweh. He continues, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. It's all about the relationship. More than this, it's all about the relationship that God is establishing. Not David and his offspring. You see, it's all about what God is doing. Notice again in these verses, in the second part of our passage, I will raise up your offspring. I will establish his kingdom. I will establish his throne forever. My steadfast love will not depart from him. This section, too, comes to a climax in verse 16. We see rather emphatically the repetition of the promise. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. This is a beautiful picture of God, not simply starting things and letting them go. Not saying, oh yeah, I'm going to let Solomon build me a house. He'll, he'll do it someday down in the future. God is saying, your house, your kingdom will be established forever before me. The imagery there is that God is proclaiming that before his very face, before his nose is the imagery. Between his eyes, he will keep this work. He will see to it personally, day in and day out, that the work will be completed. That his covenant will be established and will be sure. And this, of course, does not excuse the work to be done in space and in time by Solomon, by David's descendant. And this much is highlighted by the warning we see in verse 14. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. We know this is true because as we would have it in Scripture, when the time comes for David to charge Solomon right before he builds the temple, David says to him, Be strong. Show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in His ways, keeping His statutes, keeping His commandments. Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. You see, when we approach this table, when we come to the Lord's table, it has nothing to do with pomp and circumstance. It doesn't have to do with how Robert and Jeff will very carefully take off the sheet as if it were to fall on the ground, we'd have to burn it. It's not about the ceremony. It's not about how you stand or sit or kneel at the right time on the right foot. It's not about what I say at the exact right moment. It's about the presence of God Almighty, the one who keeps covenant, the one who builds a sure and steadfast relationship with his people. It has everything to do with our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, he is the true son of David. He is the one who has come bearing the name of Yahweh, the God who saves his people. 
He is the one who has kept all of the commandments, who has been strong and courageous to keep all that the law should require. He is the one even who has borne the discipline that was deserved for us. It is by His stripes that we are healed, by the stripes of the Son of Men placed upon Jesus to break His body. It is by His obedience that we find rest, that we can remain in the steadfast love of the Almighty. He is our King, therefore. He is the one who sits enthroned on high forever and ever and ever. This is not then a table of sadness. It's not a table that we approach because we are so forlorn in our sin and if we but think and pray long and hard enough that God might grant us participation. Now to be clear, we are to acknowledge and to confess and to repent of our sins. We are to show ourselves as needy and broken people that but for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we would not have entrance into the table. But like David, we cannot mistake our work for the presence of God. This table is for those who are in need, those who are hurting, those who are sinful, but those who confess Jesus as Lord and as King. It's a visible sign and seal of what God promises in His Word. He will never leave us or forsake us until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. Let me ask you a question. As we come to the table, do you understand that you are the house? Peter tells us that we, like spiritual stones, are being built up into the temple of God the place where His presence would dwell, even now we have the assurance of that as the Spirit lives within us. We are the chosen people. We are the royal priesthood, the holy race. God in Christ is building us up to come and to be with us. You see, the table is not just about remembering and solemnity that Christ was broken. Yes, we proclaim His death, that only by His stripes can we be healed. But you see, beloved, we look forward to a day when the King of glory will return. And there will not be the lips of preachers that invite you to this table. For Christ has gone to prepare a place for us. And when He brings back the very presence of God, as surely as we can eat and drink and taste and feel this communion bread and wine in our mouths, Jesus will be in the flesh and that King of glory will say, Come and eat. It will no longer be my job or Barry's job. Jesus Himself will bid you to come Without money, without your own working and your own righteousness, you will come because of the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will buy. You will feast at the heavenly banquet table of King Jesus himself. He is the one who invites you today. Not because of what you do, 
not because you can build them a house, but because the Lord declares to you today, the Lord will make you a house. Let's pray.